Father, as we continue to worship, we're so thankful that there is no other name other than Jesus. You know, Lord, I struggle with names, um, but at the same time, uh, there, there are a lot of things out there that we probably know, things that are called things, but there's nothing better than Christ. And we thank you for that. We pray that we would receive him well this morning, that we would not be found doing other things, but that we would be found about our Father's business. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome here. If you're just joining us online, my name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. We're so glad you've joined us to worship today. I see a really, really great crowd out this morning, so thank you. Thank you, thank you. I know it's a, a different time, and we readily and quickly acknowledge the difficulties and hardships of um, the current season we're in, but we're thankful that no matter what, we know that God is good, God is in control, and Jesus wins. Amen. Um, today, I brought my lunch with me, as you can see, because I'm a bit hungry. I'm not used to doing two services for a while. We've been outside, now we're back in. We're splitting it up and leaving time in between so we can clean. But uh, I brought some food since I'm not very good at cooking food, but I'm told that some of you actually are, that some of you are very good at cooking food, and Corona was a perfect time to practice your culinary skills. And so I'm interested to see what adventurous new recipes or foods did you purchase, try, buy, make, whatever. Something new, something old, I don't know, whatever. Tell me what you ate over coronavirus break. Anybody? Bacon. What else? I mean, there is nothing else other than bacon, right? All right, very good. I thought you were... I heard something in the previous service that told me that... Yeah, never mind. We'll come back. We'll come back to Dan, but I know Jill has something to say about Dan and his bacon later. All right? Wait and see. It's good. Trust me. It's good. Something to do with flood relief and something you told her. All right, he's nervous now. Okay, what else? Go ahead. French bread. Did you say French bread? Homemade French bread. Okay, yummy. What else? What did you say? Paella? Oh, that's good. Good Spanish dish full of seafood. Yummy. What else? Spaghetti. Why not? That's simple. Sweet potato curry? Who said that? Well done. That sounds yummy. Anything else? Cheesy potato soup. All right. Autumn squash, pumpkin, good stuff. Anyways, you get the idea. We're talking about food, and I'd like to talk about something that I could make, which is not that complicated, and it is called a, any guesses? Sandwich, exactly right. I don't have to explain to you what that is. There are two slices of bread and something in between. Lots of people have their favorite sandwiches. What is yours? Tell me a favorite sandwich, anybody? Whoa. Reuben, good. What else? Steak and cheese, what? Philly steak? BLT. Oh, bacon. Yeah, very good. I like that. BLT. Everything has a B in it for Dan. Good. Peanut butter and jelly, of course, the classic. Bologna, peanut butter and jelly, all that good stuff. 
Today we're actually going to look at a sandwich, a sandwich that is in scripture that is in Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the 11th chapter of the book of Mark. And what makes up this sandwich is basically two slices of bread and something in between. Two slices of bread and something in between. And so in a literary way, the way this storyteller is going to do it, he's going to start with one scene and he's not going to finish it. And then he's going to show you something else. He's going to come back around and finish that first scene. So in a sense, you have a slice of bread, something in between, and then the end. Movies do this a lot. You know, they leave you hanging with one group and then they move you over here, just switches scenes. That's what's happening. But the Bible is such a book that in order to understand it, you don't want to just grab that middle section and say, I know what this means. No, you've got to look at everything around it to tell you what you're eating. Are you eating a piece of bologna or is it a bologna sandwich? This, this morning, is the sandwich. It's the two slices of bread with something in between. So what I'm going to do is focus on the two slices of bread, the top bread and the bottom bread, and then we'll come back around and hit the middle, and the bread explains to you what kind of sandwich it actually is. So Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, 11, 12. Mark 11, 12 says this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, that's Jesus and his disciples, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then there's something else, but we'll skip that something else and move to verse 20. The last slice of bread. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, aha, what? And said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, does not doubt and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whether you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, to get at what Mark, i.e. Jesus, is trying to tell you in this passage, you need to think like a farmer. You need to have the agrarian mindset that sees a field and doesn't just see like dirt and plants, but instead sees a source of income, your livelihood, the fact that your very family depends on this, and if it doesn't produce food, they won't eat. This is a big deal. And so when they're walking daily in from the countryside into the city to exchange their produce or whatever, they see these fields and they understand that the goal of the field is to produce fruit. You don't want a field that's just going to produce weeds or fruitless crop or whatever. You want something that's going to essentially show you the money. You want it to bring forth a harvest. Otherwise, why are you doing it? There's no point. You're wasting your time, effort, and money. And so in the back of everyone's mind in this time period, they know what a field is for. 
Now, of course, we just go to Walmart and we use our money and whatever. But they're thinking field provides food. So, going back then to this passage, with that in the back of your mind, you think of the sandwich analogy, and I'm pulling out my bread again. And what I'm telling you this morning is that what happens in the middle is explained by what's on both ends. In other words, the bread that encompasses the central piece explains to you what's happening. So Jesus is going to come to a fig tree. And essentially what I'm telling you is that the fig tree explains what's going on in the temple. So let's, to figure out what's happening to the temple, let's first ask what's happening to the tree. Temple tree, temple tree. All right. So when Jesus comes to the tree, he's looking for the fruit. He discovers this, nothing is there. What does he do? Kiddos, shout it out. What's he do? Curses the fig tree. Exactly right. And what does it do? It dies. It dies deader than dead. This text in verse 20 says it's withered away to the roots. Jesus' words are ever again. This tree is never, ever, 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 ever going to produce fruit again. It is deader than dead. That's what happened to the tree. Everybody with me so far? Tree's dead. Now, when we come to the middle section, what does your Bible call this next section? What's the title above it? What's it call it? What's it call it? Cleansing of the temple or temple cleansing. Pastor Jeremy just told you that the same thing that happens to the temple is what happened to the tree. What happened to the tree? It died, it was condemned, it was cursed, it was judged. What's happening to the temple? Is it being cleansed? Well, wait a minute, let's go back to the tree for a minute, because let's just say, for example, that the temple is being cleansed. In order for it to be consistent then, what you would have to find is that the tree is being cleansed too. In which case, what do you do? Well, you prune the branches, you bring a little manure around it, you pack it in neat and tight, you pour some water on it, and you say, that's okay, little tree, no problem about the no fruit. Don't worry, I understand, it's not the season. I'll be back in about six months and see what you have to offer. Is that what Jesus does to the tree? Is that what Jesus is doing in the temple? No, absolutely not. The temple is not being cleansed. This is not a temple cleansing. Let it never ever be said in Midland Free again that this was the temple cleansing. This is the law of the farmer being enacted and Jesus has come into his own and he is expecting fruit. And this garden is his temple. And so he discovers in the temple, just like the tree, that it's completely unproductive and as a result, he is going to uproot it. Because as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, every tree that does not bear fruit is cast into the fire. Guess what's happening to the temple here? It's done. It's over. There's no more need for it. In fact, this is what Jesus' work essentially does. It completes 
culminates and fulfills the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Sacrificial System, and moves us into a newer and better one, so that we don't have to come to a physical place, a temple, in order to pray. Because we ourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so wherever we go, His presence is with us. It is not in one specific spot, but it is universal. Jesus' death and burial make it so that sacrifices for sins are no longer necessary once and for all he completed it and his resurrection ascension make him the great high priest. Therefore, you've got the sacrifices completed, you've got the temple now as a mobile temple with you and you have the priesthood which is no longer the sons of Aaron but instead the son of God. This is a whole better way. Jesus is not cleansing the temple here. He's putting an end to it. He's saying, just like the tree that didn't bear any fruit, so to the temple. No more you shall be. Okay, so that's what's going on with the middle section. Let me dive into a few of the applications then as we continue throughout this text. Um, Let's look at verse 12. It says, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. This is actually an encouragement to us. I don't know if you see that or not, but Jesus got hungry. Jesus got hungry. Sometimes we assume that because Jesus is God, he just waltzed through life and everything was super easy for him. He never faced temptation. He never faced struggle. He just sort of turned water into wine and walked on water and multiplied the fish and loaves and did whatever he wanted. No big deal for him. No, he was hungry. He was tempted in every way we are yet without sin. I don't know what it's like in your household, but I know what it's like in mine. And when it's dinner time, boy, Katie, bar the door. People get hungry. Uh, We're grumpy. If we don't get food in our tummies, it's not going to go well. We come in the door, and you know the first question out of everybody's mouth. What is it? What's for dinner? It's time to eat. I'm starving. We're hungry. Jesus was hungry. He was fully man, yet he was fully God. And so he didn't respond like I do or we do often when we're hungry. He doesn't get grumpy or short or tired. But instead he sees a teaching opportunity, a moment in which he can use his suffering and his pain to communicate something significant to his disciples. Because yes, Jesus will supply your every need, but he's not as much concerned about your physical hunger as he is your spiritual hunger. He's going after the heart. If it was a physical issue, I mean, the figs, whatever, Jesus could have just, boom, figs everywhere, right? But it's not. It's a heart issue. And so Jesus is still trying to teach the same lesson he's been doing from day one. Guys, you need to have faith. So he's like, okay, here comes a tree. And you know how Jesus is, right? He's like, I'm not really sure. Does that tree have fruit or not? Is that what he's like? By no means. Remember, this is the guy that told his disciples, hey, there's going to be a donkey tied around that corner over there. When you go out there, go ahead and untie it. And as soon as you untie it, the owner's going to say, what are you doing? And you say, the Lord has need of it. And he'll say, okay. The guy's like, (laughs) wow. And guess what happened? Exactly that. Jesus is not surprised that this tree doesn't have any fruit. In fact, that's why Mark adds that detail. That, hello, it was not time for fruit. Jesus wasn't even necessarily expecting fruit. He knew that. He's no fool. He's going to this tree for a teaching opportunity to explain what's happening in the temple. Jesus is continually 
pointing towards the kingdom to come. All these texts are kingdom comes. The king just came into the city in the triumphal entry. And yet in a different way than what they expected. And they're expecting him to rebuild the temple and establish his reign. And he says, oh, actually, see the tree? See the temple? Temple, tree, temple, tree. Get it? It's not what you thought. Jesus is at work. He's not surprised. It's so funny. In our lives, bad things happen. And we're like, what happened? Naturally. And we think God missed something. But he's got this teachable moment where we experience hunger and pain and want. And he's not going after the physical. He gets that. He's going after your heart. That's what's happening. Don't be surprised. God is not. He's going after faith. And so there's this tree... He's hungry. He goes to see. He already knew. And then Peter's like, Ooh, Rabbi, look. What you said happened will happen. <laughs> really, Peter? No way. <laughs> like after I like walked on water. Hey, Peter, um, do you happen to remember that time you guys forgot the uh, fish? Oh, yeah, Lord. What happened then? Oh, Okay. What about that storm thing? Oh, right, Lord. And um, there's this tree, and I cursed it. What, what, what did you expect to happen? It is kind of funny, though, because most of the time we associate Jesus' miracles with giving life. What happened to this tree? This was not a life-giving miracle. A little different. Jesus does both. He judges and he saves And in this text, it's judgment on the tree and on the temple. Jesus is making a point as the farmer, as the gardener, it's his fruit. Is it possible for God to even steal from us? No. It's all his anyways. How can he steal something that already belongs to him? He expects fruit. We are his field. We are the sheep of his pasture. We need to produce. So what then is the fruit Of the spirit or in keeping with repentance? Well, in this text, Jesus answers. He says, look, Peter, faith. Have faith, Peter. This is what, Peter, I've been trying to teach you all along. This is what, Jeremy, I've been trying to teach you all along. This is what, church, he's been trying to teach us all along. Have faith. Well, how can you say just have faith, pastor? That's not easy. Well, here's the thing. Um, I think... Some of us sort of hide behind that as an excuse. And I've got a little um, quote that I read this morning that I think is, says it well. It says this. It's by Alexander McLaren, not McLaren, McLaren. If faith is not exercised, the true cause lies deeper than intellectual reasons. It lies in the moral aversion of the human will and in the pride of independence which says, who is Lord over us? Why should we have to depend on Jesus Christ? I'll do whatever I want. That's the enemy of faith. But what does real faith look like? In this text, it spells it out. What does it look like? It looks like prayer and forgiveness and submission to the will of God. Faith manifests itself in the fruit of prayer and and forgiveness and submission to the will of God. 
That's when you know you're exercising faith. Jesus says, interestingly enough, specifically, look at verse 23. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to, what? Take a look at your text. Whoever says to you, whoever says to what? Any mountain? All mountains? Oh, this mountain. Which mountain is he talking about? This mountain, the one at that place near Bethany is the Mount of Olives. Mentioned in the prophetic passages at the coming of the kingdom, at the coming of the king. This text is not a blanket promise that when you pray, you get whatever you want. This text is the same thing that's going on with all the other stuff in this section. Is that Jesus is pointing toward the prophetic fulfillment of his kingdom. He's switching from old to new covenant. So he points at the Mount of Olives and says, anyone who says this thing... Go into the sea. You'll do that. Now, who's the only person who can do that? It's Christ himself. He came to make, you know, the high places level and smooth. And he is doing a new thing. And to the disciples, he is now showing them. There's more on this in the life group questions if you want to look it up. But this is pointing towards future kingdom eschatology. Therefore, I tell you, verse 24... Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. Again, this is kingdom stuff. So when the Lord prays, actually when he teaches us to pray, he says, feel free to fill it in with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's how we know whether or not we get what we want when we pray. When we are praying, Lord, my will be done, there's no promise. When you are praying, Lord, your will be done, there is a promise. God's will will be accomplished, with or without us. We have a lot of desires and things we want and things we need and things we ask for. Fine, ask. But the promise is that When you ask in prayer according to the Lord's will, you will receive an answer. So what's going on in this text then? Again, it's the fruit that God is looking for is the fruit of faith, prayer, and submission to God's will and repentance. The next verse, 25, says whenever you stand praying, forgive. Why? Because forgiven people forgive. How can the forgiven withhold forgiveness? It's an oxymoron. It's antithetical. You shouldn't do that. If you've received grace, we of all people should be most grace-giving. So in this text, the fruit that Jesus is looking for is the fruit of faith, which is prayer, submission to God's will, and forgiveness. Those are evidences that God is at work in your life. Now, if Jesus would have came back to his temple and he would have found everybody down on their knees praying and they're repenting and they're forgiving their brothers and sisters and they're asking for God's will to be done, I think it might have been a different story. But what did he find instead? He found them rushing around, doing their thing, all about their own business and hardly paying attention to him at all. Could that ever happen to the church?
a little scary, isn't it? What if we think in our effort we can accomplish more than prayer? We are making a big mistake. Our very power to breathe is his power communicated to us. Each and every moment, even the exercise of our will, C.S. Lewis says, is God's power given to us. We are completely dependent, just like that tree, just like everything else in the universe, on God's sustaining power. And so if we go forth thinking that we will accomplish something in and of ourselves, we are bound for failure. Yet if we stop before we go, and we truly pray the same thing that Jesus did, not our will but yours, then we can be sure that indeed those mountains will move and God will accomplish his purpose. Essentially, what are you saying, Pastor Jeremy? I think it's this. This is a summary of my sermon for today. You listened to all that just for these two words. You ready? Pray more. Pray more. Pray more. Like, a lot more. Be found in prayer when the Father comes back and you'll be in a good place. And the cool thing is you don't have to go to the temple or a specific spot because now you are the temple believing in Jesus. He sends his spirit to be in you and you can pray wherever you're at all the time. And you don't need a priest because you already got the highest one of all. And you don't need a sacrifice because he already did that. All you have to do is go and pray. And you will be about your father's business. I know that it's important to work hard. I'm not downplaying that. And generally, God rewards hard work. And the more effort we put forth, the better it goes. I get that. But the important part here, just like the people of the Old Testament, people of the New Testament have to realize it's not our will but his. It's not our work but his. And the only way this gets done is if God is in it. So I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that we've been brought back together Physically, as a church, I'm looking forward to what God will do with the rollout of our new mission and vision. I'm excited about the future of Midland Free. But I know this, it's not my future, it's not your future, it's not our future, it's his future. And only God can accomplish his perfect work. And I'm hopeful that when he comes back and finds us, that he will find us faithful. We won't be scurrying about a bunch of busy work and silly, meaningless activities, but we will be focused on Christ and his kingdom and praying for it to come. As we get ready to close, um, I think I'd invite you just to pray that with me. Many of you may have uh, learned that prayer growing up, the Lord's Prayer, and maybe you don't. You can just sit quietly and listen. Um, and I'm gonna, I know there's a couple different ways to say it. You can say debts or debtors or trespasses. I'm going to say trespasses just because that's one I memorized from way back when. But I invite you to pray that with me now. We're all going to pray it out loud as the instrumentalists come forward. And as we pray, I don't want us just to rattle it off. But I want us to think about what you're really saying. When you say our Father, you mean it, that God is your Father. When you say he's in heaven and you're on earth, you remain it. That means he me- he's the boss. That makes him the boss. Say your will, not mine. I got a lot of things I want to do, but your will, not mine. At, in heaven, on earth, just like it is in heaven. 
in my daily experience, Lord, make it so. Let's pray that together now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.